The following sermon is part of a series going through the book of Philippians, and it was preached at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. For more sermons, please visit our sermon audio page. It is our hope and prayer that this content is edifying for you. We read this evening from Philippians chapter 3, the epistle of Paul to the Philippians chapter 3. We continue our series of sermons in this book, and tonight we come to verses 17 through 19, 17, 18, and 19, that will be our text. But let's read Philippians 3, hear the word of God. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, 
of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We reread verses 17 through 19, our text. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who mind earthly things. The enemies of the cross of Christ. That is a stunning and a fearful description. The enemies of the cross of Christ. That is not how you want the Holy Spirit to describe you. The enemies of the cross of Christ. Such are not the people that you want to follow. And so the question we face immediately at the outset is this. To whom does Paul and the spirit which inspires Paul label, identify as the enemies of the cross of Christ. As Reformed people, the first kind of people that might come to our minds that fit this description, the enemies of the cross of Christ are those who attack the doctrines of grace with their false teaching. We think immediately, perhaps, of the Judaizers, which Paul warned about earlier in chapter 3. Beware of dogs. He gave as a sharp warning. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the, of the concision. With those labels, Paul identified Judaizer teachings. Crafty teachers who intentionally taught that justification was by faith and works. Especially by the outward works of the law. Particularly by circumcision. We have seen how these Judaizers insisted that they believed. In Jesus Christ. They believed that they were justified because of Jesus Christ. But when it came to justification subjectively within the consciousness, then they taught that this was how we were confident. Confident. How one obtained the assurance of this justification. They taught it was by faith, but also by works. 
And so many were deceived to trust in their works. We might point the finger at the Judaizers here and their false teaching as the enemies of the gospel of Christ. And indeed they were. Paul spoke of these enemies in Galatians 1 verse 7. There be some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. Those Judaizers and all kinds of self-righteous teachers like them are a tool in the devil's hand to attack the cross of Christ. For years and years through church history, the church has always faced this grave danger of doctrinal error and doctrinal heresies of the Judaizer kind, of the Roman Catholic kind, of the Armenian kind, of the Federal Vision kind, of the Conditional Covenant kind. And indeed, our church and denomination has learned recently that we are not immune to doctrinal errors that displace the perfect work of Jesus Christ. However, beloved, although enemies of the cross of Christ include those who intentionally use false doctrine to attack the truth of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, who attack the truth of the unconditional covenant, that is not the particular kind of enemy which Paul refers to here in this text. Notice the word walk. Verse 18. For many walk. Many walk. Of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. These enemies that Paul refers to in our text are not the enemies with their talk, first of all, but with their walk. Oh yes, there might have been, as we will see today, false ideas and false doctrines in their head and, and upon their lips, part of their walk. But Paul says explicitly that the enemies of the cross of Christ here are those who have an unholy walk that promote an ungodly behavior. There always have been, beloved, all through church history, in Paul's day, in Reformation church history, there always have been not only enemies that attack the doctrines of grace with some sort of self-righteous idea. But there have always been also those who attack with their libertine, their antinomian, their hyper-Calvinist ideas. Here Paul says about such, they are the enemies. Notice a definite article. The enemies of the cross of Christ. 
By that definite article, I don't believe that Paul is saying that antinomians of his day were the only enemies of the cross of Christ. But he's saying, this is the appropriate label for them in particular. I'm identifying them as such. And he's pointing them out to the Philippians. And those Philippians knew exactly who Paul was talking about. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul begins our text positively, notice, verse 17, by calling upon the Philippians to follow his example, follow his walk, and follow the walk of others who walk like he walks. That's the positive. But that's not the main point of our text. The, next, the main point is a negative one. Do not follow. Do not follow. That's the idea with the word for. Follow us, he says, those who have a godly walk, but do not follow these. For, he says, verse 18, many walk. Many walk. Of whom I have often told you. And now tell you weeping. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, in their shame, and who mind earthly things. The theme is the enemies of the cross of Christ, first, their worldly walk, their worldly or earthly walk, second, the serious warning, and then finally, the urgent calling. In the text before us, Paul describes the enemies of the cross of Christ. But before we delve into these descriptions, we must be convinced that these are truly, as I have said, the antinomians of Paul's day. The identity of the enemies are such who walk in sin and say, as we commonly describe them saying from Romans 6, let us sin, that grace may abound. Let us live like the world, that grace may abound. That Paul addresses the antinomian error is evident, first of all, from the context. In chapter 3, Paul is clearly in the section which addresses the holy life. He's talking about the walk of a Christian. And remember that he has already addressed the doctrinal error of the Judaizers. That's in the first part of chapter 3. He is now in a second section, a different section. The section which combats the Judaizer teaching and the doctrines of self-righteousness and legalism is in verses 2 through 9. In verse 10, we find Paul transitioning in combating errors regarding justification, now to combat, in verses 10 and following, the errors regarding sanctification. We saw that. We've seen that in our series. In verse 10 especially, we, we read of Paul's example, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and so on. By his example, Paul is exhorting the Philippian church to live like him. In this life of progressive sanctification, a holy life of, as verse 14 says, pressing toward the mark. So the context 
shows us that Paul is in a section that regards sanctification, and therefore it is most natural that Paul would be addressing enemies which attack the necessity of living a life of sanctification. That's the antinomian error. Not only is this true in the narrow context, but also what we call a broader context. Paul, whenever, whenever he combated the error of self-righteousness, whenever he combated the error which compromised the doctrines of justification by faith alone, he always, along with that, combated the errors of antinomianism. That was his pattern. You see that from the two most prominent epistles which Paul wrote against the Judaizers and against those who compromised justification by faith alone. First, you see that in the book of Galatians. This was his pattern there. One of the sharpest epistles in which he told the Galatians that they were believing a different gospel, perverting the gospel even. Paul in Galatians 5 verse 13 transitions to combat antinomianism. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, unto freedom in Jesus Christ, only use not your liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. And that's not the only verse in which Paul combats an antinomian spirit, but he continues after that to speak of the walk of the true believer in Jesus Christ. When he wrote the epistle of Romans, the other prominent epistle which combats the errors against justification by faith alone. Paul gave a full explanation of, that, of, the, of the doctrine positively. Talked about how it was not by works. And then in chapter 6, we read him. An entire chapter in which he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, God forbid, may never be. And he explains, he gives an exposition of why against those who claimed that we may sin, that grace may abound. This was Paul's pattern. That's the point. This was Paul's pattern. Whenever he spoke against justification by works, he always came through also in combating the error of antinomianism. And therefore, it makes sense common sense, really, that as you read this text in the section on sanctification, after he had argued against justification by works, that he combats antinomianism. He describes these antinomians which threaten the church in Philippi this way. Three descriptions especially. Notice now, whose God, verse 19, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. 
and who mind earthly things. And those three descriptions can be summed up this way. They're worldly. They're worldly. The leading description of this worldliness is striking. It's supposed to stand out. Whose God is their belly. What a description. Whose God is their belly. Images are to flash in your mind when you think about that, that phrase. The antinomians of his day, Paul describes as such, they made an idol out of their belly. They became devoted through their life to their belly. They made the main pursuit of their life satisfying the desires of their belly. And the first thing that comes to our mind, and it is an application that we might not want to apply it in American society used to full, big portions. Yes, it's gluttony that Paul speaks of here. It's not the only application, but gluttony. The antinomians didn't necessarily have a large belly. Paul's not talking about that. But he's talking about those who loved more than anything else to fill their bellies. That was life's goal, to take the most tantalizing of foods, the delicious delicacies, to find the best in all the world and fill their stomachs with it. A lot and the best. Romans 16 verse 18 is parallel to this. For they that are such serve not. They serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. They serve their own belly. What should come to mind when we hear that phrase, whose God is your belly, is not only that application of gluttony, but also in our day and age, what should come to our mind is the idolatry of the looks of the belly. That is something that is very prevalent in American society. It might not always be to seek to fill the belly, but quite the opposite, it seems. It might be a trying and attempting all their life to slim down the belly. Many idolatrously pursue that. There is an exercise craze. There is a dieting craze. There is a purging craze so that one can get the belly like the airbrushed models of the day or the six-pack beach body athlete whose God is their belly should bring that to our minds. Which brings us to the broader idea that Paul means by this phrase. He's not only talking about those who idolized the filling of the belly or the vain looks of the belly, but really anything and everything that is pleasurable to the physical body. That's what Paul's talking about. A worldly pursuit of pleasure. Think about your belly. 
The belly was, in Paul's day, and still is today, that which represents the hunger of the whole human body and soul. The belly rumbles. You can hear it rumble. You can feel it rumble. And the belly, when it rumbles, says this, children. The belly says, I'm hungry. I want to consume. And then it rumbles again. After consuming, after a little while, I'm hungry again. I want more. I want better things. I want the earthly. And Paul describes the antinomians of his day as those who idolized filling and satisfying the earthly hunger of the body. That's how they lived their life. They were consumers, like those of our consumer society, always wanting to stimulate the senses with sex, with tobacco, with alcohol, with entertainment, with money, and so much more. The God of the belly makes earthly pleasures the chief end of man. Instead of what Paul describes as the Christian's chief end of men, verse 10, that I may know him. But this description of the antinomians is most telling not only who, whose God is their belly, but also whose glory is in their shame. Notice that whose God is their belly is really synonymous to the last phrase, who mind earthly things, who always thought about consuming, pleasuring their body with earthly things. But between these two statements is this description, whose glory is in their shame. This especially confirms that Paul is addressing an antinomian mindset, whose glory is in their shame. Glory refers to boasting. Glory refers to something, a boasting that takes place in the heart and often that which takes place on the lips and nowadays which takes place online on all sorts of posting and social media. With regard to worldliness, Paul says, these antinomians not only sought the pleasures of this world as their pursuit in life, but they boasted about it. They gloried about it. It was shameful, but they gloried about it as they idolized their belly with a gluttony and drunkenness. They were not afraid to laugh about it and joke about it and tell others about it as they idolized the vain slimming down of their belly. They flaunted it in immodesty. And as much as they could in all the world. But it wasn't a mere boasting Paul is speaking of here. It wasn't a mere boasting like the world. But a specific kind of boasting of an antinomian. 
We may pursue the pleasures of the world, for then grace will abound. We're free with Christian liberty, and we will be forgiven anyway. Thus let us fill, take our fill, and be merry. We're totally depraved. No better than the world, but elect, so let us sin, and we can be sure of our salvation. The covenant is unconditional, so our worldly condition is inconsequential. Their glory was in their shame. Now, this glorying of an antinomian sometimes, sometimes I say, not always, but sometimes takes on the form of explicit doctrinal instruction. Romans 16 verse 18 speaks of that. By good and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. There are antinomians that boast by their Explicit instruction. They will teach. Preachers even will teach. That you need to live according to an external morality. Even the Judaizers taught that. And some of them with their external morality. Use that external morality to excuse. Worldliness. Sometimes it is an explicit denial of progressive sanctification in the Christian's life. Sometimes it is a twisting of Scripture to teach a prosperity gospel as we know it in our day and age so that you may live like the world and pursue riches to fill your bellies. Sometimes it has been taught not, not too long ago. It is what is called a lordship doctrine which confessed that Christ is my Savior, but not my Lord, and thus I do not have to serve Him and obey Him. Antinomians can be false teachers which deceive the simple. But most often, antinomianism is a practical problem. And official ideas aren't necessarily taught, especially not off the pulpit. But they're spread around, and it seems that's the case, especially here in Paul's day, there is worldliness in the church and among the church. And those who confess to be Christians merely shrug. They grin. They glory in the assurance that I may have even though I walk in worldly living. Whose glory, Paul says, is in their shame. The inspired Apostle Paul gives a serious warning against such. Notice that Paul saw that this was a serious problem. He explains that it is a serious problem. He saw it as serious because it was prevalent, first of all. Notice the word many. 
Verse 18, for many walk. It wasn't just a few who thought and taught such antinomian ideas. It was many. There were numerous who were living antinomian lives. The church of Philippi, Paul is saying, was surrounded by this antinomian problem. Yes, yes, they also had to beware of those dogs, those evil workers, and those of the concision, those who taught the false doctrine of justification by faith and works. But it was not, it was not just a problem of false doctrine. But these antinomians were teaching by their walk false ideas. Regarding the prevalence of the problem, notice that Paul does not only speak of many, but also of their constant long-term threat. He says, of whom I have told you often and now tell you often, he says, again and again, repeatedly. I've been repetitive, Paul says. And children, sometimes you wonder, he said that before. In the same sermon, perhaps, or, or in other sermons, he said that before. Why is he repeating it? I guarantee you, children, that it's not because Repetition is meant to simply bore you. It is not. Repetition is not for nothing. Paul repeats it here because it was a constant threat to the church of his day. It was a prevalent problem. Paul recognized as he battled on one front against those who wanted to insert a godly walk into justification. And at the same time, he had to battle those who wanted nothing to do with that godly walk. It was a serious problem, secondly, because those who walked in this manner were influential people. It wasn't just everywhere, a prevalent problem. But the people that held to these ideas, antinomian ideas, were influential that's implied. Verse 17, remember, Paul is calling them positively to follow him. Why? Because the Philippian church was tempted to follow others instead. Influential people. They may have been part of the very membership of Philippi. They were at least closely associated with members of the Philippian congregation, perhaps from a neighboring church. Perhaps they were itinerant preachers who came to visit their pulpits. We don't know exactly who they were, but they were influential people that the Philippian church were tempted to follow. And beloved, if this was the case in Paul's day, if this was a prevalent problem, if this was a problem among influential people as a threat to the church and Philippi, then do you imagine that this is not a problem today. That it is not an issue that we have to watch out for 
beware of at Hope PRC and the Protestant Reformed denomination. That's foolishness. Not making, I'm not making any specific judgment right now to accuse someone of antinomianism in the past five years of controversy. That's not the point. But on the basis of God's word tonight, I insist that what was true in Paul's day is true of today. It always has been in the history of the church. Many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. They make their God their belly. They mine earthly things and they glory in this shame to lead others astray into an antinomian lifestyle. There is no new thing under the sun. We may not pit one problem against another and say we have a problem of conditions made in the covenant, but not a problem of antinomianism or vice versa. The church is always faced with all kinds of errors. And the one that we find in our text is one that we must address and we must face and combat just as much as every other error in this world. The warning is sharp. Paul minces no words, just as he did not with the Judaizers, calling them dogs, calling them evil workers, calling them of the concision or the cutting and mutilation. Now he minces no words. And he says about these antinomians, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And here is the irony. There is irony here. Because the antinomians were supposedly the stalwart defenders of the cross of Christ. They were the ones saying, we may sin for the cross covers us. We may sin that grace may abound. No works, no works that it might be by grace. And we are the grace defenders. The grace of Jesus Christ. We may do evil. We may live like the world, for Christ Jesus and His cross has earned for us forgiveness. He has obeyed already, and thus we don't have to. He has made us free, free to live like the world. The cross has accomplished that for us. And Paul says in response to them, And all your glorying and your claims. That you are the ones who uphold. The grace of God. And the cross of Jesus Christ. You, in fact. Are the enemies. Of that cross. The enemies. How so? What's the explanation? The antinomian idea 
And the antinomian promoter is an enemy of the very purpose and of the very power of the cross. It attacks the very purpose and power of the cross. Yes, antinomianism often affirms the atonement of the cross, the ground of justification, Christ's finished work for us in earning our salvation. Antinomians affirm this glorious truth, and, and, and we affirm it with them. But they won't continue. They refuse to continue. They don't want to talk about this. That the very purpose of Christ, the very purpose of Christ in coming to this earth, to go to the cross, to die there, Yes, includes forgiveness so that we might be forgiven of our sins. The very purpose of Christ includes this, that we might be holy. Not just when we get to heaven, but that we might be holy on this earth. That we might be free not to do whatever we want, but that we might be free to serve the Lord from the bondage, free from the bondage of Satan and sin. That's the very purpose of the cross. Ephesians 1 verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him, God hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. With that text asked, why did God choose us? Why did he elect us in Jesus Christ? Why did he choose us and then send Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. And the answer that Paul gives in Ephesians 1 verse 4. This is why God chose us. This is why he sent Jesus Christ to die for us the elect. So that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It's the very purpose of the cross. Titus 2 verse 14. Who gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us. Why? What's the purpose? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. Not that those good works may contribute to our justification ever, but that those good works may come forth with power. Because Jesus died for us. To deny this is antinomian. To minimize and weaken this is wrong. Such antinomianism is an enemy of the cross of Christ because it rejects the very purpose of Christ's cross. And secondly, related to that, it denies the very power of the cross. When the preaching of the cross comes, to every elect believer the purpose is accomplished with power and that's 1 Corinthians 1.18 the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved it is the power of God When the preaching of Christ in him crucified comes to the true child of God, that preaching of the cross, the Spirit takes and makes it a 
power unto salvation, to cause that child of God to believe and to cause that child of God to live a life of holiness, not worldliness. Romans 6, verse 6, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth we should not serve sin. When the preaching of the cross comes, it is a power so that we are united to Jesus Christ. When our hearts know his death, his crucifixion, there is a dying within to the old man. That's how powerful the cross is. And a quickening of a new. With such a denial of the purpose and the power of the cross, these antinomians proceeded to live their life however they wanted to and to promote it among the church. And that brought a mockery against Christianity. That brought blasphemy from the world against Christ and Him crucified. It caused the leaven of antinomianism to spread so that it leavened, it threatened to leaven the whole lump. And Paul says, such antinomians which deny the power and the purpose of the cross and bring blasphemy to the name of Jesus are the enemies, the enemies whose end is destruction, he says. It's hell. It's a hell worse. It's a hell more severe than those who never heard the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. What a serious warning. Of how much sore punishment, Hebrews 10, verse 29. Suppose he, shall, it be, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. Why hell? Why such destruction? Because the antinomian who walks impenitently in this way proves that he does not yet believe in the true cross of Jesus Christ. That's why. And he is thus not saved. He may claim faith all he wants, but he must know faith without works is dead, as James put it. He may claim he knows the true doctrines all he wants, but one day he will hear those words of Christ himself, I never knew you. And if the word of God this evening describes 
the impenitent walk of you, then I call you with the urgency of Paul and of the Spirit. Repent. Today. Repent and believe in the true Jesus Christ. The complete Savior. Whose cross does justify all those who believe. And whose cross also does sanctify those who believe. Believe in the true Jesus Christ for your forgiveness, for all your antinomian tendencies as we all have them in our hearts. And believe Him who does empower you by His Spirit. The calling of our text is that which comes after the calling of repentance and faith. Paul says, be followers of me. That's verse 17. Mimic me. That's the literal translation. Mimic me. Not only my doctrine. Yes, my doctrine too. But also my life, Paul says. The Apostle Paul, as you remember, historical context shows us that Paul is many miles away in prison in Rome. But the Philippians remembered when Paul was among them. Mimic me, as you know how I walked among you, Paul says. And Paul is also describing his example of pressing toward the mark in the context, where Paul describes how he doesn't reach back to admire his good works, but reaches forward. He hasn't reached perfection in this life, but he strives toward perfection. Follow me, Paul says. Mimic me. Press toward the mark. And it should be obvious that Paul does not say that in pride. But every pastor, and every office bearer, every believing leader in church and home ought to be able to say that. Not do what I say, not what I do. But follow the godly example I set before you. Not the sins that you see which taint my works. The sins that you see when I fall before you. Follow the godly example. That is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. Paul points to his own example. He points to other examples in the church of Philippi. Mark them, he says, which walk, so as ye have us for an example. He points to Epaphroditus, as we have talked about him. He points to Timothy, those whom he will send to Philippi. He points to the other office bearers of the church and others who are good leaders. Together, follow the godly examples of those who follow Jesus Christ. Live, walk according to his law in thankfulness. 
but implied. And the main point, so we conclude with it, make sure that you do not follow the example of the antinomian. Do not be their friends. Do not have fellowship with them as they continue in their worldly living. Be not deceived. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Evil communications corrupt good manners. Follow them not, Paul says, with urgency, with passion, with tears. Many walk. I've told you often. I tell you again. Even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Do not follow them. This was no theoretical problem. Paul had faced them again and again through his whole ministry. As he preached the doctrines of grace, he always saw that antinomian element, prevalent, dangerous, and he weeps as he writes. He is urgent. He weeps because he loves the Philippian church. And he can't stand the thought of any of them following these antinomians into worldliness, excusing their sin with the doctrines of grace. He weeps at the thought of hell and destruction that could come upon any of these members whom he loves. He weeps at the thought of them being deceived. He weeps especially at the thought of the precious, precious, precious gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ being corrupted and twisted to the detriment of the church and to the blasphemy of Christ's holy name. Beloved, the gospel the true gospel, the complete gospel of Jesus Christ is being attacked on every side. It will be attacked on every side all the more. Beware of the dogs. Beware also of the enemies of the cross of Christ. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Father, preserve us. Preserve us from the evil one. Preserve us from his many and dangerous lies, that which comes in the form of explicit false doctrine, and that which creeps into our lives through the ungodly examples and influential people around us. Protect us, O oh God, from the evil one. Give us grace to resist him. Give unto us repentance that we might turn from all error and sinful living. That we might not follow 
the enemies of the cross of Christ, that we might not be, as we're so prone to, such an enemy. But grant, O oh God, unto us lives which bring glory and honor to the cross of Jesus Christ, to thy name, as we not only believe the full gospel, but live following that complete Savior. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.